I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. In October 1967, Nigerian federal troops slaughtered hundreds of innocent civilians in the town of Asaba. Once a thriving center of education, famed for producing doctors, lawyers, teachers, and high-ranking civil servants, the Asaba massacre shattered the community for generations. Yet over 50 years later, those responsible for the massacre have never been held accountable. The Nigerian government has never issued an official apology or paid reparations to the victims and their families. Elizabeth Byrd, anthropologist and professor emerita at the University of South Florida, argues that the Asaba massacre wasn't just one of the many atrocities committed during the Nigerian Civil War. It was a pivotal event that prolonged a conflict that claimed over a million lives. What were the causes of the Asaba massacre? How did it prolong the war? How did it affect the lives of the people of Asaba? And how has it been remembered? To answer these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome Liz Bird, co-author with Fraser Otinelli of The Asaba Massacre, Trauma, Memory, and the Nigerian Civil War. Liz, thank you for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. You're very welcome, and it's a pleasure to be here. So the subject of your book, The Asaba Massacre, takes place within the context of the Nigerian Civil War. The massacre, in many respects, is a consequence of the ethnic divisions that ripped apart uh, this newly formed nation and former British colony. So how far back do these ethnic divisions go? And and to what extent were they intensified by British rule? And, And how did this particular Igbo population become especially uh, targeted? Well, that is a, a very long and complicated question. And uh, yes, it it goes back really long before the British colonized. Um, before, before Britain or any other European power came on the scene, uh, there was no Nigeria. There were various ethnic groups, various kingdoms, various little... Um, enclaves uh, all across this 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 area. Uh, British uh, showed up. Well, they've been they've coming into the area that is now Nigeria since oh, probably 17th century. Certainly, the Portuguese have been there uh, trading and so on. Uh, very involved in the slave trade, obviously. Um, and uh, but at that point, that you know, you're dealing with. One one kingdom or one group at a time. There's a, there's no united Nigeria, um, and so uh, the Britain really consolidated its situation in the 19th early 20th century. Um, formed the uh, created something called the, the Southern Protectorate, um, and then later the Northern Protectorate, uh, which was the northern part of Nigeria and the southern part of, part of Nigeria. Uh, eventually, and give you a lot more detail than that, but it's probably that's probably the main thing. And then it united these two areas, um, I mean, forcibly, really, in 1914, and, and created Nigeria. Um, but the northern part of the country really had very little in common at all with the with the south. The north was Muslim, had been since probably the 30, well, from anywhere from the 12th to 13th century, had really become Muslim, and it connected really for trade, for culture, for everything with um, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, and so on. It wasn't very connected with the South. Um, The South was, uh, now there are 
there are approximately 250 ethnic groups in, in Nigeria. So it isn't a question of just the Igbo, Hausa and Fulani are the, uh, the main groups in the north. In the south, you have the Yoruba and the uh, Igbo are the two other really large groups. But there's hun- literally hundreds of other groups as well. Um, but a lot, a, a lot happened with the colonization. But when Britain took over and tried to kind of push all of these areas together. Um, they, they, they ruled them very differently. In the north, they, uh, they used what they called indirect rule, which was a system where they kind of co-opted the uh, local leaders, uh, imams and, and sultans and, and other, um, other leaders, and, and ruled through them. Uh, they didn't disrupt, they didn't change the 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 system uh, really uh, they allowed it to operate as it always had been but they were now in charge um, they also did they didn't introduce uh, education religion mission they didn't want to upset the local leaders by trying to bring in Christianity or anything so things pretty much kind of were stable but very favored by the British in the south there was a whole different kind of structure the Igbo for instance were a very dispersed group they um, they were very. They didn't have uh, chiefs, leaders, kings. Uh, they had small village groupings, uh, a much more democratic uh, kind of system of governance. Uh, male, male dominated certainly, but but generally, generally much more um, a flat kind kind of um, governance structure. Um, there was where the uh, Royal Niger Company, uh, which was licensed by the British, came in with uh, trading, all kinds of trade. They took over the whole Niger River basin, really, um, and introduced, and, and following the trade, you had missionaries, uh, missionaries cr- created schools. Um, it was a very just a very different dynamic happening there. Um, the Igbo essentially embraced um, Western styles of religion, of uh, education. Uh, they became very involved in commerce and business. Um, they, uh, in, uh, in around the 1950s to 60s, um, vast majority of university graduates were Igbo students. Uh, many Igbo went abroad for education. In the north, the, uh, well, the really levels of education were really quite quite low, um, and as I say, very, very different dynamic. So kind of long story short, but before independence came in 1960, but before that, what the British were trying to do was set up, um, uh, they were calling indigenizing all the, uh, the civil service and other, and commerce and so on. So they, uh, they recruited a lot of uh, local people to take these, these positions. But, there was the Igbo and the Yoruba, but well, mostly the Igbo, who, uh, who who were qualified to take these positions, and they took them all around the country. So in the north, they would be uh, running civil service, they would be running the railroad, they would be running um, other kinds of businesses and so on. And this created a lot of tension, a lot of resentment uh, from the north. I'll stop there. Just you can, you can ask more if, if. I mean, you would think in terms of economic opportunity, if there's one population that is going to identify more with a, a Nigerian nation, it's the Igbo population. 
Yes, um, I mean that that's that's probably true. Uh, they didn't identify with the north, um, really. The the separation between the um, Muslim north and the non-Muslim south was was really very profound, and and actually still is. I mean, this this pushing these two very disparate populations together was made things very difficult. But also the, the British set up a new governmental system uh, before independence where there would be a federal government um, and people would be uh, representatives would be elected to, to the, uh, the parliaments, but it was dependent on population numbers. The North had 50% of the population. Every other area combined was the other 50%. So the, the North really had a stranglehold on power and that, again, created a, a, a lot of um, tension. Uh, so in the early 60s, there were um, there was a lot of uh, disputes about censuses because censuses became important if you're looking at populations. Um, and then there were uh, uh, elections that were, well, run poorly. Uh, there was a lot of corruption um, gen- and a lot of just riots and violence around the, the mid-60s. Um, as the regions, at that point, there were four regions of Nigeria as defined by by the, the way the, the British had set it up. So there was the northern region, the southern region, uh, sorry, the northern region, the western region, the eastern region, and then the Midwest, which was a small region that was very multi-ethnic, kind of right there in the middle but, but by the uh, River Niger. Um, so you had these four regions. They were all trying to uh, vie to get people into into government, uh, but none of the, but none of them really has the uh, the power to do that. Um, so it was, so a lot of a lot of unrest leading uh, well leading up to the to independence and and in the immediate years following independence, um, and a lot of um, a lot of resentment against the Igbo, particularly who were seen as. As very, um, they were seen as pushy. <laughs> the rest of Nigerians sort of saw them as, as pushy people who wanted power. They would see themselves differently. They would see themselves as entrepreneurial, as uh, as having a great deal of education, initiative, and so on. Uh, so you get this situation of great instability in the years from independence in 1960 through till 1966. Um, in 1966. Um, there was a series of, uh, there was a, the, a first of a coup. Not, sorry, in 1966, the, there was a, a coup that happened in January uh, of that year. Uh, and it was a coup led by a group of young uh, army officers, mostly majors, but, um, uh, and mostly uh, of Igbo origin. Uh, in a way, that wasn't surprising because the Igbo again dominated the military forces. Um, but uh, what they were what they said they were doing was they wanted to uh, form a new government that would be free of the corruption and the uh, ethnic um, hostilities and so on. Uh, and so, the, so they, uh, but, but by doing, but the coup actually uh, turned out to be pretty violent because what they did was uh, they killed um, northern leaders, they killed the uh, prime minister, the federal prime minister, they they, they killed various leaders from the northern region. Um, and, of course, well, that just exacerbated uh, tension and, and hostility towards towards what was seen as the Igbo. The coup was overthrown and the uh, leaders were arrested, but it sparked a whole other set of 
rioting, um, and it began what was became known as the pogroms, which were people um, which were in the northern and western, mostly the northern region. Um, people set upon the Igbo. Um, they they lived in segregated areas within the north, uh, but they did they ran a lot of the uh, the business and the civil service and so on. Um, so this tension that had been there for a long time kind of spilled over, um, and Igbos were just attacked, assaulted, murdered um, in thousands, um, and nothing much happened. Um, a little later in the year, there was a second coup. Um, uh, sorry, the uh, after the first coup, a new uh, a new uh, leader was installed. Um, General Aransi, who was a, an army officer and also an Igbo, um, so obviously still not trusted. Um, he took over but was himself toppled in a coup several months later in 1966 and, uh, and murdered. Um, and a new, a new group of people came in. Uh, the leader that was chosen to lead, lead Nigeria at that point was a man called Yakuba Gowan, who was a 32-year-old um, military uh, major at that point who uh, was from a small ethnic group and therefore was perceived as somewhat uh, neutral. He took over. Uh, the pogroms continued, um, and he didn't seem to be able to do, to do anything to control them. And essentially, um, Igbo in the north started just pouring back into the east. Millions of Igbo were, were spread around the country. The east was their territory, their homeland, but they had been living in the north and west and elsewhere uh, in all of these other jobs. They started pouring back the, uh, by roads, by rail, um, and back into the eastern region. Um, it's estimated that probably about 30,000 Igbo were killed in these pogroms, um, and well over a million, probably one to two million, fled back out of the, those areas into the eastern region. The eastern region is to the east of the River Niger. That's the, essentially the, the uh, boundary. Gowan had created uh, military governors in each of the, um, in each of the four regions, um, and the, the, the military governor in the east was called uh, Emeka Ojukwu. Um, he was a Again, a very young man, 34 years old, uh, ambitious. Um, gradually from 19, the end of 1966 onwards, there were all kinds of attempts made to try and get the Igbo back into the fold, as it were. Um, there was a big conference at Aburi in Ghana in early 1967. Everything failed. And, and by May, Ajuku was saying that the uh, Igbo were not safe in Nigeria, that they could not survive attached to the uh, to the rest of the country. Uh, he felt, he was very confident that, that the East, dominated by Igbos, but with many other ethnic groups there as well, was the best educated, the best prepared, and actually the most Western um, group of Nigeria. So May 1967, um, Juku declares secession. He says, we are just, we're going to go it alone. Um, and I think he was hoping that that would mean that, that essentially um, the eastern region could split off peacefully and become a nation of its own. He felt confident it could be an independent nation. It had good resources. It had, as I say, a highly educated population. Um, it had some potential. Um, 
it also had a lot of oil, and that turned out to be one of the, the key issues. Um, he named the new country Biafra, and it was named after the Bight of Biafra, which is a small sort of um, coastal area, um, not well known up, up until that point, um, and declared to be the sovereign state of Biafra. Uh, from May to June, um, not a lot happened. Um, but in July, finally, Gowan was intent on keeping Nigeria together. And certainly the British, British were no longer literally the colonial masters, but they were very much, uh, very much involved, very much in, uh, in control. They wanted to keep Nigeria as one country. There was a lot, they had a lot of, um, interests in keeping it together and the resources that, that were available and so forth. Um, but uh, so Nigeria began a, what they what they called a police action at first. Um, they were just going to hopefully go into, the, their idea was go into Biafra, put down the coup, the rebellion as they called it, not, not a coup, sorry, a rebellion, um, and bring Nigeria together again. Um, and they did... They did quite well to begin with. They went in through the north and into uh, into the parts of northern Biafra. Uh, they took over a lot of areas, including the university town, Suka, uh, eventually the, the capital. Um, but they, um, I know they didn't really consolidate things. <laughs> uh, and in August of 1967, the Biafrans decided they were they were a very bold move. They were going to invade Nigeria. Um, so essentially, that's what they did. They came over the Niger, um, over the bridge, uh, the, the big, the new Niger Bridge, which was had only been built a couple of years before, um, was their route in through uh, through the big city of Unicha on one side and into Asaba. The, a town which was actually on the west coast of, of the uh, west side of the uh, river and was in the midwestern region. Um, and so they, they came they came across the bridge. They didn't really stop. They just kept going. Uh, their troops fanned out. They went. They were heading for Lagos, which was then the capital of, Ni of Nigeria. Heading there, they also were fanning west and, and east and trying to take over various places on the way. Uh, they moved through Benin City, which was which was the um, capital of the Midwest District at the time, Midwest region, uh, and headed out towards Lagos. Um, they nearly got there, but they were turned back. Um, eventually, the the federal forces, which which had grown rapidly, they had to recruit literally thousands of troops, which they did, often very untrained troops. Uh, they were recruiting from prisons, from anywhere they could find people. Uh, but they did succeed in pushing the Biafrans back all the way along. They, they made it through about 200, 200 to 300 miles west, um, but they were pushed back by the federal forces, came all the way back to the river. Um, and then they, the, the Biafrans fled. <laughs> they, they retreated across the river, back into into Biafra and they exploded the bridge on the way. They put uh, charges, uh, various kinds of explosive under it, blew it up, um, which meant that the um, federal troops who were pursuing them uh, were stuck. Uh, they, they couldn't really go across in ferries or anything. They needed to go to the bridge. So they stopped and they were in Asaba 
this small town, um, which was in an interesting situation because it was ethnically Igbo, but they they used to call themselves Western Igbos. They would be not quite the same as the Eastern Igbos, but very similar. The language is basically the same. Um, they had a lot of sympathy with Biafra. Some of them did. Um, but on the whole, they wanted to stay part of Nigeria. So they felt that they were they were very safe. Um, they hadn't been attacked by the Biafrans at all. They came through. And then the federal forces came, came in and occupied the city. Which brings That's a lot to summarize. <laughs> it is, and I'm <laughs> sorry you. if it's too dense. No, no, so no. That I can... was excellent. Um, <laughs> so at this point, uh, you have a, a kind of a stalemate, right? These two forces that are facing facing each other with this river dividing the two. And uh, you said the federal forces are camped out in Asaba. What makes yes. this mm-hmm. community especially vulnerable? What is it? What What are its characteristics that really puts it at risk, even though it seems like the people themselves don't realize it. Yeah, um, they, I mean, the, the, the troops mostly camped out on the outskirts. They weren't at that point really in, inside. They arrived, uh, all this had happened uh, between August and October. The Biafrans had, had crossed the bridge in August, pushed back, and then they had they had retreated back over the river in the first few days of October. So we're looking at around October third, fourth, fifth, the Federals arrived. Um, the thing about Asaba was was really, as I, as I mentioned, they, they were uh, predominantly Igbo in ethnicity. Um, and a lot of the uh, federal troops were, and, well, they, they, were, they were feeling very hostile towards the Igbo. One of the things that the Biafrans had done when they came through to the West was they'd occupied Benin City, um, which is a, a, of an ethnic, most of the ethnicities in Benin are called Edo people. And they had actually been pretty violent themselves. They had um, they'd killed people. They had forcibly taken over the local government. Um, there was a lot of anger at, at what it's, what the, how the Biafrans behaved uh, in that area. Um, so the troops that were coming through, a lot of them had actually been recruited from that area, from around Benin City, uh, as well as from the north and, and elsewhere. Uh, and they kind of had a score to settle. Um, there was also a sense or a, a belief that the coup, that it, the first coup that had set all of this off, um, had been led by Igbo uh, officers. And one of them was was supposedly from around Asaba. He was actually from a little bit out of Asaba, but he was identified as Asaba because Asaba was called, uh, was, was a district, it was Asaba district as well as the town. Um, so there was a general sense that these Igbos, these Western Igbos had been part of the problem that had caused the war in the first place. I mean, they really hadn't. <laughs> uh, Asaba was a, was a, had no real tradition of being in the military. They were, they were civilians. Uh, they had one of the highest uh, rates of education in the country. Um, they was used to they used to pride themselves on having the largest number of, of professors from anywhere in the country, and, and of academics, uh, teachers, um, highly educated sort of group. So they were very they were very vulnerable in the sense that they just didn't know what was happening. They were just hoping that the that the federal troops they didn't see it very likely that the 
that the government of Nigeria, troops representing the government of Nigeria, of which they were part and of which they were loyal subjects, would do anything uh, violent. Um, so it was a shock to them what, what happened when the, um, when the troops started sort of milling into town and so on. Um, and it became clear that they were not peaceful. Um, they, the troops were angry and frustrated because they couldn't get across the river. They couldn't do what they came to do. And they started taking it out on civilians, just like pulling them out of their homes, um, shooting them, young, young boys and young men in particular, uh, if they saw any who well, they would. If they're wearing boots, they would say, "You must be a Biafran soldier." So they would take them out, shoot them. There were all kinds of pretexts on which they were they were killing people. Um, but it was in a scattered kind of way. Uh, but but people were getting more and more afraid as as this happened. Uh, there was a sense of things being out of control. They had no idea really why this was happening. Um, but what they decided that what they decided to do, they had a meeting. The elders of the of the town held a meeting, uh, and they decided that the best thing to do would be to kind of meet with the commanders, the army commanders, and offer them money and other things, um, and just show them that they were peaceful. Uh, this had actually worked in some smaller towns, some outskirts of towns where the federals had come through and they and had been met and welcomed by the um, by the populace. Uh, so they did. Uh, they dressed up. They they wore ceremonial white clothes, which are called aqua ocha. Um, they carried placards saying "One Nigeria." They they went through the streets shouting shouting "One Nigeria, One Nigeria," uh, and they marched. Uh, men, women, and children. Uh, there's a long, long, long street called Nabisi, Nabisi Road, which which sort of goes through the centre of what was old older Sabah. So they marched down there, um, singing, dancing, chanting, um, with the goal of, of showing their good intent. Um, this was on the October 7th. Um, this was a day after there had been a, quite a lot of killing the day before in small groups. But this was hundreds, possibly thousands of people who, who, who marched together. Um, the streets were lined with soldiers. That's how, how people describe it, um, with guns. Um, and and sometimes, as they as people went by, they they would be randomly shot or pulled out of the um, pulled out of the, the crowd. Um, so it was very it was terrifying, as people described it. Ter- just just terrifying. They they were just hoping things would get better, but it didn't look good. Uh, eventually, they reached a kind of crossroads, um, and soldiers surrounded them, and they started separating the women from the men um, and and boys. And some of the some of the survivors that, that I spoke to uh, were young boys at the time, maybe teenagers of fourteen or fifteen. Some of them talked talked about how they. Um, there was debate: are they chi- are you a child or are you a man? Um, and some of them ended up leaving with the women if they were young looking enough, and some uh, remained with the men. Um, there were stories of how mothers tried to dress up their, their sons as women, putting dresses and, and um, wraps on them. Uh, but anyway, at that, at that point, the women were all taken away. Women and children were all taken away to a nearby maternity hospital, and they were just 
kept there. Um, some of them reported they could hear after that they heard gunfire. Uh, and what they were hearing was the men had been corralled. Um, they were the soldiers, the, the officers spoke to them. There were reports of how the officers were saying, you know, you are Igbo, we're going to kill you. And there was, um, they started taking them off in little groups of 10 and shooting them. Um, and then as some people reported it. It seems they got kind of tired of shooting people in small groups. So they, uh, they had machine guns mounted on trucks and so on. And they just basically got people together and then started mowing them down with the machine guns. Uh, and they just, they, they fell. And our witnesses, some of them report how they, uh, they only survived because the other bodies fell on top of them. Um, eventually they crawled away. Uh, so the shooting went on for quite some time. It was raining. It was a terrible day. Pe um, people just reported you know, rain and blood. And, uh, and it finally ended around late in the afternoon, evening. Uh, the soldiers moved away and, uh, and the survivors crawled out. Um, and eventually, when the women were released from where they were held, some women came, came and found their sons, their brothers, husbands, took them away. Um, in the days following that, uh, mass graves were dug um, under direction of soldiers uh, and people were just thrown into them. So you mentioned this is a chaotic scene and there's frustration and there's a bit of maybe score settling going on. Um, are there other reasons to, to help explain how this could have happened? I mean, there were suspicions that that that, that Ebo uh, in the area were were collaborating with uh, with with their eastern cousins. There were definitely suspicions that they were collaborators. Those were that was the ac accusation all the time um, was that uh, you know you are a collaborator, you're a Biafran soldier. Um, there really didn't seem any evidence that it, that, that there was any collaboration going on. Um, the um, as I say, there was some sympathy. I mean, many people had relatives and friends on the east side of the river, uh, but that doesn't really mean there was any active collaboration going on. There were stories um, that were passed that, that sort of appeared later about how an Ebo, somebody opened fire on the on the federal soldiers. Again, I don't see much evidence of that. There really weren't armed people in in Asaba, um, so it is. It is, it's difficult to explain exactly um, because there seems to be – one of the factors was how many poorly trained soldiers there were. These were soldiers who had joined the Federal Army often um, with basically no training at all. Uh, we spoke to officers who had, who had been at the scene um, who, who, who reported that uh, – they had been essentially given given recruits and two weeks training, um, and they had had to uh, somehow get them in shape to, to fight. Um, and they many had joined because they they just needed a paycheck, <laughs> um, or they, they felt there was some some other way out. Uh, so the the soldiers were, were very undisciplined, and the officers themselves, many of them were, were not very well trained or, or experienced either. So what you had was several battalions um, within within the larger army that was in Asaba. 
Um, and it seemed that one or two of them were, were very undisciplined and one or two of them were not. <laughs> um, and so you had some soldiers who were behaving like professionals who knew that you, you don't kill civilians. Um, uh, General Gowan had had a code of conduct for, the, for his troops, which uh, sort of went along with basically a Geneva Convention type of approach, you know, that you don't kill civilians. Um, and um, But some of the others seemed out of control. So it was almost like... Um, a bloodlust. <laughs> that sounds a little a little dramatic, but a kind of that they they, they were just angry. They were frustrated. Uh, a lot of the um, people we spoke to reported that many of them seemed drunk. Um, they had come in and commandeered food and drink. Of course, um, they seemed. Uh, some said they thought they would have were smoking various drugs or something. Again, it's hard to it's hard to very verify that, but but people talked about them being red eyed and angry. Um, uh, they also, uh, Asamba was a wonderful place to loot um, because they did have a lot of um, you know, fa- fairly well-off families, uh, people who had cars, uh, who had TVs on, and and um, appliances and radios and and, diff- and 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 stuff, you know, in their homes, um, and that seemed to be a motivation for. Again, with the undisciplined soldiers who were not really under control of, of, of competent officers, so there were many reports that they would just um, just go into houses and just loot. They would. Uh, one young man told us of how his father uh, allowed two soldiers into his car, was trying to be friends with them, and eventually. The, the two soldiers pulled the, the father out and shot him and stole the car. Um, that was common. Lots of so you, this was not a disciplined fighting force. It was um, it was disorganized um, and, and not well trained. And there's a, there's a particular officer, Murtala Mohammed, who stands out in the story. How much of the blame do you do you put on him? And didn't he have a, a fairly elevated position of command? Yeah, Murtala Muhammad was the um, commander of all, of, of all the forces. Um, he was colonel. Um, he essentially he was in charge. Um, it's not at all clear that he ordered this. In fact, it, it's 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 very hard to know how it exactly started. You know what, what orders were given. Um, he had a second in command called, called Ibrahim Taiwo. Who um, appears to who was a major who whose names came up in many witnesses that he was actually there at the scene when when the when things opened when when the soldiers opened fire. Mohammed was not apparently he he was in Asaba he was in, he had an eight, uh, HQ just outside of of Asaba uh, so he was in charge um, but uh, it's not clear if he actually ordered a massacre and I, I don't really think that he did um, but ultimately he was in charge of the troops um, and clearly was not in control um, so he's generally regarded as far as any as, as the individual who who probably could have could have stopped it or should have stopped it or who either didn't know what was happening or knew what was happening and turned a blind eye you mentioned earlier, well, the British have this interest in the one Nigeria. And, I mean, there's a real risk here of, the, of this whole state just completely 
falling into pieces. I mean, why don't they try to intervene at this this point? Why isn't there an effort to try to rein this in, to try to act as intermediaries, uh, to to try to put an end to the conflict as early as possible? There were efforts, uh, probably not as early as, as 1967, but certainly into an early, early 1968, there were... Uh, people who tried to act as intermediaries and get the sides together. Um, But basically, Britain wanted Nigeria to stay unified, uh, and they were were supplying arms and weaponry to the federal government. Uh, From the beginning, they were, and they continued all the way through the the three years of the war to to be the biggest arms supplier. Um, So... They did. They did try various efforts, um, but they they were intent that they would never have any troops on the ground. Um, they did not want to be seen as you know an, an actual an active part of the um, of the conflict. Um, they just essentially stood back and gave the uh, federals as, as much support as they possibly could. And you mentioned that that uh, in general the media failed you know what you describe as the, the the old media that they really failed to to draw attention to what was happening to generate uh, 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 more of a response to to condemn this kind of violence how, how was it that they they missed they missed out on this well that was i mean it was, this was a time when the media was the media were and the news, newspapers and so on um, were, were quite tightly controlled they were tightly controlled uh, from um, from the Nigerian end, um, it was hard to to get you know credential to go out with to go with the, with the uh, soldiers, um, so you could actually report what was going on. Um, there were also um, certainly indications that uh, that the British were were trying to keep things kind of under wraps, um, that they, they didn't they didn't really want this to be known. Um, the what happened in Asaba? There were, there were no, as far as we know, there were no press anywhere near it when it happened. Um, so there are certainly there are no photos of anything that happened. There are there are a few photos uh, from a, a freelance a journalist with the Times of London about which show the aftermath, the bomb bombed out houses, um, that sort of thing, um, but. Uh, Nobody reported it. Um, the first actual report of, of what happened in Asaba was in uh, early 1968, uh, months months after after the event, um, and uh, when an article appeared in the um, the Observer, a British British newspaper, which talked about uh, around 700 people killed on October 7th. That was probably an underestimate, but that's what they that's what they had there. Um, and that it was an ice. They said it was an isolated incident. It um, it had been sparked by an Ebo firing on the military, um, and it was very unfortunate. <laughs> um, but it was seen as something that that was just kind of an aberration, not as not as anything bigger than that. Um, and it seemed to be the quite well controlled the story seemed quite well controlled in that in that sense the government's government government's spokesman was quoted and that sort of thing um so 
essentially nobody knew anything about this um, in the West. Uh, the whole war took a long time to actually get into the Western consciousness at all. Um, it was seen very much as was kind of dismissed. It was often called a tribal war, a tribal conflict. Uh, and it was kind of seen as these Africans fighting each other for reasons we really don't know. We can't figure it out. Um, so you'd get reports, but they really weren't detailed. And it was, it, it was not, it was not a huge story in the West, certainly throughout 1967. Um, there were reports, the we found reports in the Times and in other other British newspapers, um, but there were no reports in Nigerian newspapers at all. Um, you know, or they were all just you know the federal federal troops advance and everything's going well. Um, some American correspondents were there early on. Uh, a reporter called Lloyd Garrison from the New York, uh, New York Times, I think he was. Um, who were reporting? They reported on the pogroms earlier in the in the year, and they reported on on the war. But they were never right there on on the spot, as it were. It was usually after after the event. Um, so it, it just it was just ignored. Um, now the, we know that the British knew about what happened in Asaba because. Uh, I did research in the archives, National Archives in London, and there were reports, and there were you know, dispatches and things talking about about the various atrocities and how um, essentially worried they were, particularly about uh, Murtala Muhammad, um, who was seen as a very volatile and potentially out of control uh, commander. Um, and there were reports that say things like. Well, we we know what happened in the Sabbath, um, but there certainly was no attempt to make it known in the media. Uh, I think it, well, in the book um, I mentioned that the, there's only one real account of that was written at the time of what was happening in the Sabbath, and it was a letter that was written by a, um, a, a, a then a young woman called Celestine um, Celestina, and she uh, wrote a letter which he smuggled out of Asaba in, in the immediate aftermath of the, of the uh, attack um, to her brother, who was a Catholic priest studying at Oxford University. And he then tried to uh, take it to, he took it to various people at Oxford. He took it to, he tried to get it to the media, but nobody was interested. Um, and so there were opportunities for news to come out, um, but but it never did. Um, this was a, it was a time when basically media could be controlled you know, quite effectively. What were the consequences of this silence, this failure to generate uh, an international response? Well, I, I mean, I think they had important consequences on the way the war went. Um, I think, it, and it's hard to know, you know, the war is getting to what ifs, but if the atrocity at Asaba, and not just at Asaba, but at some other small places too, where civilians had been had been essentially massacred in smaller numbers. Um, if that news had got out in Britain, um, I, I think in Britain in particular, maybe elsewhere as well, but uh, if people had known what was being done essentially with their weapons and in their name, I think there might have been more of a an up, you know, a, a set of a sense of complaint and a sense of outrage. Um, and if that had been the case, then maybe there would have been much more pressure on the British government to um, 
to do something, to, to intervene. Um, but the control was pretty tight, and the, the, the government didn't want to intervene at that point, really. They just wanted, they wanted it to be over, and they thought that, that the Federals would, would win pretty quickly. Uh, most of the reports that came out around like, late 1967 were predicting that the war would be over by Christmas 67 uh, because the Federals were overwhelmingly, um, had overwhelming uh, number of forces. Um, so there was a sense of let's just, you know, wait this out and get it over with. Um, I think if that, if, if there had been real counts of, you know, of, of hundreds of people being lined up and, and murdered in cold blood, I think uh, more would have more would have happened in Britain, possibly in the States, certainly elsewhere. I think what is going on with this war? What is, what is happening? But the converse of that, perhaps in a way, is that well, while the West didn't know what was happening, the people in Biafra certainly did, um, because many of the people who escaped the murders in Asaba escaped over to Biafra. They took boats, they, they found ways over the river and, and found refuge with family and friends over in Biafra, young men in particular. And uh, reports then went back to Biafra about what was going on and how the Federals are coming in and slaughtering people. Um, this was, you can imagine, very alarming to Biafra. They, the, their view would be, well, if they can do that to people who, are, who really are supporting them, what will they do when they when they get in force over here? Um, and what it did was it really kind of steeled the resolves of the Biafrans to fight on. Um, and that, I think, was in a sense disastrous because um, Biafra, in a way, really was doomed, um, but it went on fighting for, for two, well, no, two and a half more years after that. And that real fear, right, that real fear, that fear of, of, of a possible genocide right, helped prolong the war. Absolutely. Um, they were, there was, uh, there was, was terror that uh, this would happen. And of course, and there was evidence of, of certainly uh, very brutal methods being used in the effort itself um, by, by certainly by early 68 and so on air raids on hospitals and markets and um, other Reports of civilian killings when troops were coming into into towns and so on. Um, so there was there was fear that if if they capitulated, they would they would all be killed. Uh, and so it kept it kept. I think it kept the war going. Um, and by early '68, the uh, federal blockade on Biafra was was very successful. Uh, it was cutting off. Um, Food supplies. Uh, the the meat producing area of Biafra had already been conquered by the Federals. Um, Biafra's population had ballooned with all the people who came in from the uh, from the north and west, uh, and that's when the uh, terrible starvation began. Um, so, by about the spring of 1968, that was when pictures began to come back to to Britain and elsewhere. From, directly from Biafra, showing the starving children um, and the terrible conditions that were that were happening there, and it was it was about then, about June of 1968, when uh, public opinion started to really get fired up about what was happening in in Biafra, um, and then then things did change 
but the war still went on until January of 1970. So if we, if we return to the, um, this uh, community of Asaba, and you mentioned during, during the massacres, the massacres, which really s- stretched out over, over a couple days, um, culminating on October 7th, that men were targeted in particular, particular men um, uh, were, were killed. And this, you mentioned, had a real destabilizing um, uh, effect on the community uh, and left women in, in a very vulnerable position. Um, and this affected the, 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 the city of the town for, for years, for generations afterwards. Can you go into detail about what, what, what was so traumatizing and destabilizing about how that how the massacres unfolded, who they, who they affected. Yeah. So this, this, I mean, this is a small town um, and it, it's a very, uh, the, the, the Igbo structure is, is a family based extended families. So you have um, you, uh, one, one man who is uh, often, he's kind of a patriarch of, of the extended family. Um, uh, they, that point, many men had more than one wife two or sometimes three or more often two. So would each have their children. They would, they would tend to live in um, compounds um, and there would be the one man in charge, uh, his wives, um, wives may be living in separate homes or they might anyway be. um, So he, he essentially is the provider um, for, for everybody. Um, And if, uh, if something happens, say to, his brother. This is a, it's a patrilineal, patriarchal kind of society. So it's men and their brothers who take care of, of women, and children, um, and so when the parade started going through through Asaba, they put all the senior men in the front. These were the elders, the, the people who are on the, the councils. The um, Asaba, like other Iba communities, has an age grade system. So. Uh, when you're at a certain age, you're in you're in a different grade, age grade they call it, uh, in terms of the governance of the town. Uh, so you have an el- an elders group in particular that essentially runs runs everything, um, and a lot of them were in the front. They were leaders, and many of them were cut down, you know, in in large numbers. Um, so it ended up with. Um, with families, extended families of women and children who often had no male males left, um, they had either been killed or they had uh, fled. There's one one uh, woman I spoke we spoke with who um, was pregnant with her fourth child. Uh, she had three older ones, um, and her husband, who was in his twenties, his brother, and his father were all killed. Actually, not on the seventh, but the day before. So yes, you had families which had lost several brothers, um, fathers, uncles, um, and it put a terrible strain on the family afterwards. Um, talked, for instance, to uh, one man who essentially had all his brothers had been killed, uh, and he was the only survivor, and he had to take care of his brothers, wives, and children um, and provide for them. Um, and it was almost impossible to, to do that. Um, as I said, this was a very educated community. People expected to be able to go to school, often on to university. Uh, all of that kind of stopped. You know, they couldn't have 
couldn't, well, school was closed, of course, for, for a couple of years, but they, uh, uh, they, they couldn't, they couldn't do those, do those things. It wasn't a particularly a farming community. There were some farmers. Um, they probably, in a sense, did better. Um, they weren't dead, but you know, we talked about uh, women who were able to kind of take over um, agriculture that their husbands had run, run and so on. Um, but uh, women, I mean, we talked to women who had been young at the time who had, had never got married because. Um, there hadn't been people to marry, and they hadn't had the uh, resources to get married. You need, uh, and uh, so had ended up, you know, staying in their father's homes for the for, for all their lives. Um, many buildings were totally destroyed. Um, the people lived in uh, in most of the houses were were brick. Uh, some were thatched, but a lot were not. Um, these houses were were just destroyed by shelling and so on uh so you, you had to rebuild you had to um find a way you know to, to essentially to make a living after all this had happened um and there were families we spoke to people who the family had basically just sort of gone into decline the um the fathers or male relatives senior males had died there was no one to take care of them kids didn't end up going to school that they had originally hoped to they they'd generations later they're they're still struggling um women had to take on roles that they'd never really taken before you know running families um talked to several families where the mother had become it was important. Women are, 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 are much are, are very much respected in Igbo, Igbo society, but they don't run families traditionally. Um, some of these women had to do that. Um, they had to find ways to uh, to keep often many children through doing things like trading, you know, trading stuff, scavenging. Uh, some turned to actually sort of spying um, and. Um, smuggling across the river um, wherever they could just to to make a living. One of the things that struck me is you said all the interviews that you did, you really never encountered or were able to interview one person who was raped, right? And and that was widespread uh, within that town. Those soldiers, uh, after the massacres, were still in that community for an extended period of time. And, uh, and women became targets. Yes. Women were targets, you know, from right away. Um, there was, I think the fact that we never met anyone who personally said they were raped was simply a, a fact that it was a shameful thing that no one wanted to admit. Um, we heard many people would tell us about other women who had been raped um, it was that was common. Um, yeah, uh, we heard all the stories about how young girls, in particular, had to be protected and guarded, um, often dressed as old women, for instance, or would be they would be given a smaller sibling to carry on their back, so it would look like they were mothers, and that was apparently somewhat that would tend to put off some of the, uh, the men who might have been inclined to assault them. Um, but yes, it's very clear that rape and other, you know, assaults were, were widespread, um, and you know, it, uh, it's not untypical this kind of situation. Uh, there were some marriages, legit, you know, marriages of women who, um, who, because the soldiers were there for several months, local women did marry soldiers. There were also things that were that were often called forced marriages, which 
It's not really clear what exactly that meant, um, but it meant essentially a soldier would take a woman as his wife, um, not necessarily marry her, but move her in. And some women did accept that because it was a, it was a way to survive. Um, they would have children. Uh, some of these marriages ended up actually succeeding, but many did not. Many times the soldiers, when they left, they left the women behind with children. Um, and this was another long-term effect because um, there are there became a kind of a known population of children who were the who were the children of rape. Um, if they had not had anyone who was able to, to stand up and become their provider, um, they were, women would be left alone to, to raise those children. And those children were very stigmatized. They were regarded as um, polluted. Blood of particularly house of northern soldiers was, was believed to pollute the, you know, the true Asaba people. Um, some of these children would be adopted by the woman's father. That, that was a way around getting them into the, uh, into the family. But, of course, many of these fathers were dead anyway. Um, so there were these sort of spiraling um, effects. Uh, but certainly w- women were, well, women in many ways bore the brunt of this. Uh, some were killed. Um, there were accounts of women who had either refused to, um, refused to be taken, refused to have sex with a soldier and were shot, or women who had simply tried to step in and and, and stop what was happening were also shot um we didn't we didn't hear we didn't hear so many uh, uh stories of that but i th- i think to be honest there was a certain um there was a certain devaluing of, of female casualties there were the assumption is that there were more many more men killed than women and there certainly were um but the, the, there were and, and, and many, many important men. And, and so that, they, they tend to be ones that people talk about, how many important men there were. Um, many um, women and young girls were, were also killed, undoubtedly. That's a part of the skewed nature of, of, of the memory that you talk about later on. Yeah. Um, but so, so the war comes to an end uh, in 1970. And you have, uh, what, until 2001, it's, it's military rule in, in Nigeria. Um, is there any attention paid to, to what happened during the war or, or what happened in, in, in Asaba? How is that, that past dealt with? It isn't. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the things that is very striking about Nigeria is that after the war was over, um, they said we were going to um, – have reconciliation and bring everybody back into the fold uh, and forget about the war. Uh, so there really wasn't there wasn't much attempt to um, to let people know about the war. But remember, Nigeria was a very big country, and over to the west and Lagos and around there, um, most people probably were very much unaffected by what was happening towards the east. They probably they didn't know unless they, unless they had family who were actually in the military um and so it was quite easy in many ways for the government to just kind of say all right the war's over we're done we're all brothers again um now let's move on there was a there was a very strong impulse to move on forget it don't talk about it um people reported in asaba how they 
they tried to have um, kind of events, commemorations of, of, of the dead, sometimes on October 7th. Uh, they, uh, and they were often forbidden to do it, or they were just, they were, they were told by the, by the military, various military governments and, that you mustn't do this. Um, they would, uh, the church uh, in, in Asaba has many plaques uh, on, the, on the pews which report the names of people who were killed uh, on, that, on that day. Um, those would be people who, it's a Catholic church, who were Catholics and who, were, who were, had enough means to get a plaque made. <laughs> um, but uh, for the most part, uh, people just told their stories within their family. Um, it was understood how, what, what a great loss there had been. Um, whole gener- generation, it was seemed, were destroyed. Um, but also a great fear that if, uh, if they brought it up or tried to do anything about it, there would probably be um, consequences. So you mentioned when well, you get to the 1990s, there's a particular book that comes out, and then there's a change of government. Uh, you, you have a return to a, a civilian government, and there, there's a panel that's created to investigate what happens in the past. How much of a turning point are these things in terms of addressing the memory, at least on a national scale? Those were, were important. Um, 1994, I think, was the year that Emma uh, uh, Okocha's book called Blood on the Niger came out. Uh, uh, he was a, he's, he passed away just fairly recently. He, um, his book was in... Was was interview, interviews and all and other things that, that, that really sort of was a first written account of what happened in the Saba. Uh, he had been a very small child when this had happened, um, probably just a few, four or five years old, um, and uh, his uh, his father was killed uh, in, on October seventh. So he, he was trained as a journalist, and he made a he made it his mission to tell the story. Um, the book came out. Uh, I, I don't know how much impact it really had at the time, but it was it was known. Um, and then when in two thousand one, uh, with the new civilian regime, uh, as you said, the uh, they had a, uh, a truth and reconciliation committee. Essentially, they became known as the Akuta panel, which was after the chairman of the, um, of, the of the panel, and they had hearings all around the country. Uh, not. Just about certainly not just about Asaba, not just about Biafra, but about uh, various kinds of civil rights violations and other violations that had happened really in the in the years since uh, probably since independence. Uh, so people would uh, would get up and give testimony um, and tell tell about what happened. And, and several people from Asaba, some of whom we later interviewed, um, did testify at that at that panel, and it got quite a lot of press. Press coverage, um, so that definitely was a turning point. There was a sense of people finding out things they had never known before, um, and it you know it, it addressed not just uh, Saba, it addressed the pogroms up in the north, uh, other things that other kinds of violations that had happened under the different military governments over the last few years. Um, but unfortunately, it it sort of collapsed uh, in the end. Um, a report was written, and it's you can get it on the internet, but it was suppressed. And it was never released at the time. Um, I think the feeling was it was probably going to be too explosive. Um, so it 
it, but the news was out there by then, and then you saw a rise of just people, people talking about it, an awareness that something had happened. Um, but in general, you know, the country had, had not had not known or even accepted that something like certainly something like Saba could have happened. And we've talked we talked to people, for instance, who'd said they uh, when they were older they had tried to tell people about what had happened to people in other parts of the country and had been just. Uh, people had very aggressive responses. This could not have happened. Our, our government would never have, have done that to innocent civilians. So um, it, took a, it took a long time, but it, from the mid-1990s through to the presence, um, the awareness of, of Asaba and, and the other things that happened in Biafra uh, have certainly uh, grown tremendously. So you get to this... Uh uh, the 90s, this book comes out, the, the panel in 2001, uh, it's it's covered by the press. It's I think it's aired on TV, some of these testimonies as well, right? So you gain you gain uh, attention, that, that uh, an awareness that wasn't there. And this happens at the same time that uh, the internet is getting off the ground and people have new outlets to uh, to have conversations about, the, about these findings. Uh, and you had already mentioned, well, the old media – really entirely missed the story at the time and uh, uh, failed to generate awareness that could have made all the difference. So now you have the new media uh, that seems to to pick up the story and runs with it, puts it into wide circulation. And do you find that the new media does a better job uh, in terms of uh, offering a a just balanced account of this past? I wouldn't say that the that the new media offers a balanced account for the most part. Um, I think you just get a. It's like anything that happens on on the internet. There's sort of plethora of voices comes out, you know, um, and start people start posting on all over the place. But on particularly on on sites uh, that are for Nigerians and often for Nigerian diaspora people. Um, the uh, one one impact of the of the war in particular was how many people actually left Nigeria, but and, and many Igbo, but many others, but, but certainly Igbo in large numbers ended up in the U.S., in Britain, um, Europe, all over the all over the world, really. Um, and they have very active diaspora communities, and that's where a lot of a lot of things did happen. People would post, you know, did you know about this story? Or my father, this is what happened to my father. Um, and then there'd be all sorts of discussion, um, often citing the Okocha book, Blood uh, on Niger, or the Akuta panel. Uh, so a lot of just debate. Um, unfortunately, a lot of it was extremely ethnically divisive because you would get people posting something had happened and then you would get very vitriolic comments back from non-Evo people saying, no, this never happened, you're lying, um, this could not have happened like this, or basically, well, they deserved it, you know, if you're going to secede and, and rebel against your government, this is what happens. Um, losing the nuances of the fact that, in fact, Saba never seceded from Nigeria. So... Um, so it, it a lot of chatter. I, I, you know, I think it becomes more. It, it becomes um, becomes more known. I mean, I think now, by now, I think many, many Nigerians and, and Nigerian diaspora people know about the Asaba massacre. They, it's become 
a well-known uh, historical fact. Um, the details of it are not always well-known or all the nuances of it, um, but it's, it, it's, it's known. Um, and when my colleague and I started going into, we, we first went to a summer in 2009 um, and, and started interviewing people and talking to people. Um, and it was, it was a year after that that the... Um, that people in Sabah started doing regular commemorations, so commemorative events every every October. Those have gone on ever since, and there's now a lot of people who are very involved in that sense of creating uh, a, a memorial. Um, they did build a small memorial uh, near the site of the massacre um, that was built using local funds and fundraising and so on. The goal is to now build a much bigger Park that would be more kind of symbolic of the uh, of the, of the entire of what happened um, to, not just in Asava but elsewhere in the Midwest. Um, but the, the yeah the the interest in the, in the on the internet. I mean, uh, I made a short video. It's about twenty minutes long. Uh, not very not very professional, but uh, but kind of made from pictures and and interviews um, and posted that really with the goal just of having something to use in presentations and so on. But it went on the internet. Uh, we posted it on Vimeo and then um, it later got picked up by YouTube. Once something is out there, you, you, you lose control of it completely. Um, and so this video was everywhere. I mean, uh, I, I, start, I tried to count downloads in the first few years. Uh, we made it in 2012. And it was up to 50,000 views quite quickly. And now it's kind of available anywhere. Um, and so you could see that these. So now what, we, what we were trying to do was create as, as objective an account as we could or as, as simple account as we could of what happened and try and intervene in, in the kind of um, wrangling that was, that was going on um, across the Internet. Um, I built the the uh, memorial website um, as well, which has clips of the from the interviews, transcripts, um, other things that sort of talk about what happened and the implications and so on. So it became almost necessary to become part of that process, mm. <laughs> um, you know, in a different way than one does if writing a book or something. But you mentioned that there's a a very volatile context that so you have on the one hand this memory that's been kept under wraps and now it uh, goes viral through the new media at a time where there are lots of people who have historical grievances and uh, resentments uh, in, in reaction to uh, uh, their experience of, of military rule. Um, and uh, they take, they take that memory and they use it for their own, their own purposes. It's it's hard to not see this because I you know I just finished an episode on uh, uh, on Gorbachev and Glasnost and how he's surprised at this openness that he hopes to use in a constructive way ends up fueling nationalism and breaks apart the Soviet Union. <laughs> it seems like a similar type of thing that there maybe maybe at least some at least certainly within Asaba right they hope that this memory would be used constructively and they are hoping for reconciliation but on a national scale. 
it seems to be driving the country apart. I think that's true, but but up to a point, because I think what happened with the, uh, in Asaba, yes, they want to raise awareness, they want reconciliation. What they, what they often talk about is creating a, a sort of memorial space that would that would represent peace, the way they could have uh, education about peace and about reconciliation. Um, it, the, 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 it, it's a crucial kind of difference what happened in Asaba and what happened in Biafra generally. Um, it's very, there's a lot of tension around the relationship between Asaba and Biafra uh, because most of the efforts in Asaba have been to say we are not, we were not Biafrans, we are not Biafrans, and we're not part of, of any kind of Biafran um, resurgence group. Um, so they're trying to control the uh, narrative about Asaba and mem- mem- memory and keeping it within the context of Asaba. Um, Biafra is another question altogether because you, you, that is more like, I think, what you're saying about um, about Gorbachev and uh, you know Glasnost. The, uh, because um, the same thing that's happening um, you know, around the actual Asaba massacre is also happening around the the war in Biafra, which has left the Igbos to the east raw, raw and and furious for years. Um, what happened after the war, although the government wanted to um, reconcile, uh, they did not make it easy for the Afrans to come back into the fold. Um, they, they basically uh, allowed them uh, details, but they allowed them twenty pounds in their uh, the accounts that they at one time had. So they had nothing to build back again. Uh, during the, the, there was a sense that the government did very little to actually build the up. The was in ruins. Um, they said maybe two million people dead by the time nineteen seventy came around. Um, starvation of a kind that almost sort of set the standard for for famines. Um, so. The grievance felt in Biafra was of, of, of a many times bigger than you might say than the, not bigger, but um, felt there were more people uh, involved in, than, than the people in Asaba. Uh, so while Asaba was trying to distance itself from Biafra, Biafra itself had a post-war um, memory boom, if you like, as well, where they are telling story, the story of what happened in Biafra, they are, um, and what this does, during, particularly during all the military regimes, is fuel a tremendous sense of grievance. They feel that the Igbo, who were at one time the most educated, the most successful, the most westernized group in, in Nigeria, were potentially kept down. Um, that's the argument anyway. And so now you're seeing several uh, new so new Biafra movements, um, which uh, have become quite quite major. Um, they say their goal is to create a, a new Biafra, a Biafra reborn. Um, and that has caused a lot of um, unrest, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, some violence, certainly some clashes with police. Um, it's strong in the, in the diaspora. Is this is this driven by is this driven by the diaspora more than from within the country? I think there's some evidence that it that it is. Um, 
when you if you talk to people who lived through the the war in Biafra, most people do not want to relive that again. They they have a sense that if 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 these um, if these groups succeed or that they could create war again, they do not want another civil war. This was an incredibly traumatizing experience, um, and so you get it's driven. A lot of people in the diaspora, some people within within Biafra, younger people perhaps who haven't really felt, didn't feel the brunt of what the war did. Um, but it is, so it's, it's similar things that are happening. Uh, the whole Biafra thing is in parallel with the Asaba memory boom, but they are, and Biafra often tries to um, co-opt the Asaba massacre as part of the, of, of the, the Biafran resurgence. So for instance, I saw I saw the video that we made being posted on pro Biafran sites um, where they were using it to show how what, what the federal government did to Biafra, while losing the point altogether that the Asaba was not part of Biafra, or they will claim that actually they really were because Biafra really was all of Igbo land, which extends into the into the, that part of Nigeria. So the sort of re um, revisionist kind of approach to what the Afro was and how Asaba was connected to it. So you mentioned well, the community leaders, but you have this memory of this past of the war, Asaba, that's uh, happening on a national level. It's happening internationally uh, with the diaspora, the, the new media. Um, but then at the same time, you have the leaders within Asaba who are trying to lay claim to their own memory. You know, right? They want to, they want to promote, reconciliation they, they want uh, uh they want this to be uh something constructive right and you get drawn into this right? they're reaching out to to people beyond beyond their community they're reaching out to scholars how, I mean, how is it that you get drawn in at this time and, and then when you do when you do start looking into how this is remembered within the community you see it as having certain limitations that you try to counter yes um we did initially. Well, when we got drawn in. There was a series of circumstances involving a colleague of mine who was working in Nigeria in a different context. Um, it's kind of a long story. So I won't really get into that. But it um, what what some of the leaders really wanted to do um, was actually bring in some some scholars to really look at the, the story of what happened. Um, because this will give substance to um, to their case, uh, and it will be seen as um, somewhat impartial. That's the idea. Because the, the part of the immediate post Aputa panel um, problem was that whenever the Ibo, whenever Sabra would talk about this, or leaders, there would be a sort of dismissal of 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 what they were saying as Igbo propaganda. And so there was a sense that bringing somebody in from the outside would be helpful. So um, as I said, the first visit, I, I, I thought when, when I first started, I thought that I would be doing some oral histories. Uh, they want, cause they wanted some oral histories done before many people died. You know, they were, this was in 2009. This was 40 years after the event. Um, witnesses, Many witnesses had already died, and you know, there was a sense of the people remembering the past was beginning to dwindle. So it was a case of getting them on tape and getting their stories told. Um, 
I didn't necessarily anticipate that it would become a much <laughs> much larger project than you know become a book at this at, at that point. Um, but going back and becoming more and more embroiled in it, and um, then going to all the archives archives in London in, in various resources around the US and so on, and finding what a complicated story it really was. Um, so, uh, so yes, um, we became very involved in it. Um, we also became aware that uh, sometimes the the story, the kind of simple story that was uh, that was being told, was actually more complicated than than people would would really admit, as it were. Um, you know. Whenever we go to a Saba, there would be always somebody who would come up and say, um, oh, you're here to look at the massacre. You know, that was when we all got together and we danced to celebrate and, and we were we were cut down in cold blood. We know, we didn't expect it. It was terrible. The, um, you know, they they gave us no warning. Uh, those are, that, that story is usually told by people who uh, weren't there. Um, and it's got a came known as kind of the dance of death. There was this notion that people were celebrating joyously, and then this terrible massacre happened. And in fact, the witnesses will made it clear this isn't what happened at all. That, that, that certainly people did were dancing and chanting and so forth, but they were doing it to stop the violence. They were the violence had already started. They were um, they were terrified uh, when they began this parade down the street. Um, so it's a different kind of. Uh, the, there was certainly a betrayal, you know, a sense of a terrible sense of betrayal. But, it, but a lot of the kind of the details are not quite what has what has ended up in the kind of popular imagination of the of the, the simple one day event. Um, you know, we also learned that it wasn't a single one day event. It wasn't something that began out of the blue on on October seventh and, and ended on that day. It had been happening for couple of days before that that the people were being killed sometimes hundreds of people at a time on the previous like on the previous day um that it was a much it was a much more messy and chaotic um few days uh, than than the simple sort of account of the asylum massacre was actually was actually telling we learned that killings went on even up afterwards there was a second second bout of killings in 1968 when the Biafrans came back and tried to invade the area around the Saba and soldiers went again house to house and pulled people out and killed them and we have a lot of accounts of that and became known as the second operation um, but several months after the first operation if you want to call it that um, so the story became, was, was complicated and uh, I think the thing about memory is there's an urge to, to uh, to rationalize it into a into a simple a simple account something that can be understood and grasped by everybody um, and it's it's not as simple as that Elizabeth Bird is professor emerita in the department of anthropology at the university of south florida she together with fraser otinelli is co-author of the asaba massacre trauma memory in the nigerian civil war liz thank you once again for sharing your time and thoughts. Well, thank you um, for your interest. For more on this subject, see the podcast website, realmsofmemory.com, where you can find a page devoted to each episode with links to additional resources. Next month, 
we'll hear from Salwa Ismail from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London about her book, The Rule of Violence, Subjectivity, Memory, and Government in Syria. We'll learn about how the uses of violence by the regimes of Hafez and Bashir al-Assad shaped Syrian memories and the possibilities of resistance and opposition. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for taking time to listen to Realms of Memory. <laughs>